Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can keep up to date by visiting CapitalAllocatorsPodcast.com. My guest on today's first meeting is Ben Inker, the head of the asset allocation team at GMO a $60 billion asset manager known for its value bias under founder Jeremy Grantham. Ben joined GMO right out of college nearly 30 years ago and has been there ever since. Our conversation starts with Ben's early investment lessons from renowned economics professors at Yale and how that led him to GMO upon graduation. We discuss his framework for thinking about investing and the struggles of value investing over the last decade, including the impact of global dominators, technology, and interest rates. We then turn to the case for value today, the challenges of value going forward, and the characteristics Ben sees in allocators' successes and mistakes. Lastly, our conversation took place a few weeks ago, but the world's changed a lot since then. So I reached back out to Ben late last week to get his current thoughts on the market. Please enjoy my first meeting with Ben Inker from GMO. Ben, great to see you. Good to see you, Ted. Well, why don't we get started with your original interest in investing? Yeah, I think for me, one of the things I've learned looking back is there's something really to be said about following those teachers who seem to be most excited about what they do. And I think for me, my interest in investing came from the teachers I had who made investing seem like a really interesting problem and seemed so enthusiastic about what they were studying. I got a little bit of that in high school from an economics teacher who made economics seem fun. But then getting to college, the classes that were the most exciting were the ones who were being taught by professors who just loved thinking about investing problems. And who were those professors back then? The professors who I had for investing as an undergraduate. First, Robert Schiller, teaching me an intro finance course, which was fascinating. Then I got to take another intro finance course from uh, David Swenson. And then I got to take an investing seminar from Jim Tobin. So I had the advantage of some of the most extraordinary teachers you could ever hope for. And what do you remember, if you, you can walk right through, but start with Schiller's class? One of the things that struck me, I remember in one of the first classes, he was talking about investment advice. And he was talking about a call that he received from someone who was pitching an investment idea. And nowhere in the conversation did the concept of price ever come up. And he just said, well, you can't be investing. You can't be thinking about investing until you have answered the question, what is the price that I'm paying for something? And one of the things I love is when somebody says something that is both incredibly obvious and incredibly clear, and yet you hadn't thought of before, 
And I was just like, oh, wow, yeah, investing. Of course you can't do this. Of course no one can tell you whether something is a good investment without talking about the price that you're paying. And time and time again, one of the wonderful things about Bob Schiller and Bob Schiller's work over the years is how he asks some very simple questions that have, in some cases, non-intuitive, but profound answers. And what are some of those other questions? I love the work he did on analyzing the clairvoyant value of the market. Right, He said, hey, the basic problem with trying to do an analysis of investing is you need to know the future, and you don't know the future. And so he just said this very simple thing. Well, I don't know the future, but I do know the past, so I can pretend I am sitting in 1910, but I actually know the next 50 years of dividends and earnings for the market. And he asked a very simple question. How much volatility is there to the underlying fair value of the stock market? and came to both the obvious yet stunningly non-intuitive answer that there is very, very little volatility to the underlying fair value. It's about 1% a year. And yet the market has a volatility of 17. And that's a mismatch. That says there must be some predictability to the market But it kind of came from asking this very simple question. How can I analyze something? How can I try to understand when there's this profound, unknowable piece of it? Are there any others from Schiller that you remember over the years? Certainly the original idea of the cape, which again, isn't even quite his idea. It is him just saying, well, we should really try to do this systemically. And the understanding to be able to pull apart the what are the cyclical factors impacting earnings versus what is the underlying trend? And how do we try to make sense of that? And I remember one of the things, kind of embarrassingly stupid mistakes that one makes in trying to think about investing I did this research piece on oil when I was taking this seminar from Jim Tobin. And we were just talking about, well, what should happen to the price of oil at the gas station if there is a sudden supply shock, right? So there is no more oil coming from Saudi Arabia, but you've got all this oil that you paid as the gas station owner $20 a barrel for, and now suddenly the price of oil has gone to $60 a barrel. Should you raise your prices instantly? Is that profiteering? I was struggling with, well, is it? Is it not? I don't know. How do I come up with a consistent way of thinking about whether something is a fair price or not a fair price? And it was one of those wonderful ways where Tobin was able to teach simply the profound concept of replacement cost. The way to have a simple way of determining is this a fair price or not, it doesn't matter what you paid. It doesn't matter what you will pay tomorrow. It is what is the replacement cost of this thing. And the replacement cost should drive price. And once you have that, it's like, oh, well, this has applications across everything. But he was able to 
teach me in this one stupid case where I didn't know how to analyze the problem. And it's like this one simple insight. It's like, oh, okay, the world suddenly makes sense. Let's turn to the third professor you mentioned, a certain Mr. Swenson, because I know that he was instrumental in where you landed and have been in your career ever since. So why don't you kind of tell the story of how that all happened? Yeah, that does speak to the random nature of the things that impact you in life. I wasn't actually originally supposed to take David Swenson's class. At the time, he taught this big lecture class at Yale on investing that was somewhat affectionately named Stocks for Jocks. And I wasn't going to take it because I had taken the ostensibly more serious course from Bob Schiller, but wound up taking it because I wasn't able to get into this undergraduate slash graduate program that I thought was going to teach me a lot. So I wound up taking it because my roommates were taking it. And then my roommates and I showed up late to the first class. And this was a very popular class because it was deemed to be easy. And the only room was in the front of the lecture hall. So my roommates and I were sitting in the front row. And David was talking animatedly and seemed to be having a good time. But my attention wandered, and I happened to notice his shoes. And his shoes were, were not very attractive, at least to my <laughs> fashion-challenged mind. And I whispered to my roommate, get a load of this guy's shoes. Aren't they the ugliest shoes you've ever seen? And I thought it was quiet. I did not think he was going to be able to hear, but he did. And he then stopped the lecture. And he said, you know, I just heard something from the front of the room that it may be that I'm wearing really ugly shoes. And that is important knowledge to determine whether I do. So can I please get a show of hands? Who in the class thinks that these are really ugly shoes? First, I was horrified that, oh my God, he overheard me say how ugly his shoes were. But he turned it into something so much fun that from then on, we decided to sit in the front row for every class and wound up getting to know him and talking to him after class, and it wound up changing my life. And how did that play out as you're going through your senior year trying to figure out what you're going to do? I wound up taking a seminar from him and asked him to be my thesis advisor for my senior thesis, and so had gotten to know him really quite well. And then at some point, one of the partners at GMO called up David to ask if he knew of any students at the Yale School of Management that he thought would be a good fit for the firm. And David said, no, I don't, but I have this undergraduate that I think you should talk to. And the response was, okay, well, thank you, but we're not really interested in hiring undergraduates. They never had hired anyone straight out of undergraduate, certainly for an investing role. But he talked them into at least interviewing me. So I went up and I interviewed. And as near as I can tell, favorably impressed absolutely no one at the firm. <laughs> I came back down. And from what I can understand, since I wasn't in the call, Jeremy Grantham, the founder of the firm, called up David. And he was trying to be careful about this because Yale was a very big client of the firm, saying, you know, we interviewed him, seemed like a nice kid, but we're really not that interested. So David, being the persistent man that he is, said, well, talk to him one more time, because if you don't want to hire him now, maybe you'll hire him after business school. So I went up, I interviewed, 
Once again, I think I favorably impressed nobody at the firm, came back down. And before they spoke to me, again, Jeremy felt the need to speak to David and let him down gently. So he said to David, at least as much as I understand of what happened in the conversation, we're worried about what happens if we hire him because we're just not sure whether we can really make use of an undergraduate. And he's got job offers now, but if he winds up out of a job after a year, now we've put him in a bad place and and maybe we don't want to make a job offer that actually winds up hurting somebody's career. And David's response was, oh, well, if that's your concern, don't worry about it. Give him a job for a year. If you don't like him after a year, I will get him another job. If I can't get him another job, I will give him a job at the investments office. So that's fine. Take that off of your worry list. So Jeremy, having backed himself into a corner as to exactly why he wasn't (laughs) going to give me a job, found his legs cut out from under him and uh, found himself talked into making me a job offer against his better judgment. So I owe David a tremendous debt, not only for teaching me a tremendous amount, but having gotten me a job in kind of one of those unique situations where you get a job at a firm where there are no human beings at the firm that actually wanted you. What was that like when you showed up? It was disconcerting. They truly had no idea what to do with an undergraduate. And one of the strongest pieces of evidence for that is I had said that I wanted to start on, I don't know, August 3rd or something. And I was going to be a research assistant for Jeremy Grantham. And he said, okay, well, that's fine. What he failed to tell me was that he was on vacation the first two weeks of August. So I showed up. They didn't really have any place to put me. They wound up moving the fax machine, and they had me sit where the fax machine was. But I had literally nothing to do for the first two weeks. One of the other partners at the firm just gave me a stack of Journal of Portfolio Managements and just said, why don't you read these? (laughs) So the first two weeks, I did more or less exactly nothing. And even then, since I knew so little, it was difficult for Jeremy to figure out how to engage with me to be useful to him. So it took a few months before... Between the two of us, we managed to figure out what problems he had that I could actually help solve versus the ones that either due to my lack of background or my lack of technical knowledge of how to navigate their systems, just couldn't do anything about. And how long did it go before you realized, hey, this actually will work? Well, it took a while. I can remember when we were coming up on my one-year anniversary, and this was quite important to me because I had been explicitly hired for a one-year trial period, and it was just about one year, and Jeremy brings me into his office, and he says, okay, well, we're a little bit late. We normally do reviews and pay adjustments for June 30th, and, you know, it's the beginning of August, but here's what your new salary is going to be. And I said to him, so this means I still have a job? (laughs) And he had no memory that he had, in fact, hired me for a year. So once we got through that, I was feeling reasonably good that at least I was doing something of some value. Yeah, that first year was a little bit nerve-wracking. All right, so that was now, what, 27 years ago. So why don't we just circle around to... What 
did you come to learn about your own kind of investing philosophy and the ethos of GMO, even starting then? And you know, we can talk about how that's evolved. I think the most valuable lesson that I feel like I have learned over the years is that to be a good investor, you don't need to have a particular style to your investing, but you do need to have a strong view of what it is you are doing such that you should be getting paid for it, what is necessary given that underlying belief to be doing, to be paying attention, and what it is that given that underlying kind of philosophical viewpoint, you shouldn't be agonizing over. And I think the understanding of which pieces of information are utterly essential for the way you are going to be trying to invest and which ones you would be well advised not to spend your time worrying about. It really helps you understand how you should be spending your days. That's a great broad context for thinking about investing. Where along the way did you find your own footing in the activities you were doing within GMO that drove your belief in why you're going to get paid for what you're doing? So much of it comes from stepping back from what you are doing for a moment to just ask, why am I doing this? And I think a lot of what I have learned over the years, not surprisingly, having spent 28 years working with Jeremy Grantham, an awful lot of what I have learned has come from Jeremy Grantham, but some of it has been the explicit teaching, but a lot of it has been, Jeremy is asking me to look at this. Rather than just looking at this and doing this analysis and giving it back to him, why do I think he is asking me to do this? And it's the why questions, and frankly, the how questions, that I think have been most valuable to my understanding of investing and are where I feel like at this point, since I'm no longer that capable of doing the direct research myself, our research infrastructure has passed me by and I no longer have the requisite skills, but where I feel like I can be helpful to the analysts that are actually doing the direct work, it is by continually prodding at, well, why? Why this? Why that? Why do you think that this effect you are seeing is there? And what are the implications in terms of other tests you could do to answer the question of, yeah, this is actually why this works. I don't know how you can get confident in any finding until you can answer the question, this is why I believe this thing should work. This is why my analysis of the, I don't know, the economy over the next three months is going to have an impact on the prices of the things that I'm looking at. And this is why I think I can actually do a better job of forecasting the economy than somebody else. Over the years, GMO is known mostly for 
colloquially we'll say quantitative investing and a value bias. And there's certainly been both quantitative and qualitative fundamental products. As you've looked at the activities of the people on your team, what do you see as the strengths of quantitative investing and the weaknesses? Yeah, I think that there has been a lot of synergy over the years for us as investors in having quantitative and traditional fundamental investors sitting near each other because the great strength of quantitative investing is if you have a theory about how the world should work, you can very efficiently express that across kind of a wide view of assets. You can test it across a long run of history. The danger you always face is not noticing how the world may have changed. And the fundamental analysts are more likely to be in a position to be seeing here is this fundamental change. When we are analyzing these companies, we realize it's not just that we don't care about their book value anymore, but even their stated earnings turn out to be a lousy test of whether this is a good business model. And so being able to sort of feed that back in and saying, oh, well, even if we are going to care about value and even if we are going to try to do this in a quantitative way, maybe we shouldn't be starting from gap earnings. The history of GMO inevitably comes to this 2000 to 2002 period where business was great, value underperformed for a while, business was less good, and then you had a bounce. What is similar and different from that period of time than where we sit today? The similarity to, well, not so much 2000 to 2002, because 2000 to 2002 was a wonderful period for value. The similarity to the 1994 to 1999 period is this has been another dreadful period for value as a strategy. We see that kind of on a individual stock level. It's also been a lousy period for valuation-driven investing at kind of an asset allocation level, which is what I tend to focus on. So there is very much that similarity. I'd say there is a noticeable difference, though. I was talking to a client not long ago about 2019 performance, and 2019 was another lousy year for value as a stock selection parameter. But they were very happy with our performance because we had been doing better than value. We weren't doing better than the broad market, but they said, hey, we have you as a value manager. We're very happy with how you've done. And you're the last value manager we have. So we don't really want you guys to have really good performance, but we'd like you to perform well relative to value. And it is that tendency, the idea that value as a style feels completely passe. And investors don't really get that concerned about the fact that 90% of the active investment managers they have have a growth bias. That feels similar to the late 1990s. A difference, though, is while some of our clients have terminated us after some tough performance, there isn't 
the anger about it that I can remember in the late 1990s. The emblematic story from then was there was a U.S. institution that we had gone to speak to their investment committee every year for, I don't know, 15 years. And in 1999, we were disinvited from speaking to their investment committee on the grounds that their committee chairman said that Jeremy Grantham was both dangerously persuasive and totally wrong. And there was this idea that, oh my God, even talking to them might infect you with bad ideas. We don't see that level of disgust with the idea of value today that we did back then. What's your current belief, kind of getting back to your framework, in why you'll get paid for owning value today? Yeah, I think that really has evolved. I used to believe that buying simple, cheap PE, cheap price to book was going to outperform because there was this underlying behavioral bias towards people not wanting to own companies that bad things had happened to. And that this was just a shorthand way of, you know, if you're trading on a cheap PE basis, probably that means something bad happened. And nobody likes talking to their clients about, yeah, we own this company and something bad happened and we keep owning it. I think that's probably too simple an analysis. And we've definitely seen this, that at various times, like 2005, after a wonderful period for value, you could very proudly go to your clients and say, yes, I own these companies because things have been horrible for these companies. And they'd be like, oh, yeah, that's great. That's what we like. And so I think value has this inbuilt advantage as you are getting closer and closer to some platonic truth about how companies will generate cash flow going forward. And the nice thing about value relative to other things like, say, momentum, is you don't have to care what the market inefficiency was that caused this thing to be mispriced. You can be agnostic to that. And so if that changes over time, if suddenly people don't like companies that start with the letter A, those companies will wind up cheap and you can outperform that way. The thing you need to be careful about is the assumption about what investors really dislike. You don't want to take shortcuts. You don't want to just assume that what investors disliked in 1998 is the same as what they disliked in 2014 is the same as what they dislike in 2020. And what are those things today, as you look at sort of your portfolios, the inputs that go into those models of what it is that investors dislike that constitute attractive value? Certainly, if you look at what has been dominating performance in the market and therefore in people's portfolios, it has been a wonderful time to be a dominant company. And the gap between the underlying fundamentals for big dominant companies relative to the also runs has gotten really big. Now, the area where I think there is something to really exploit about that is when you can pull apart the difference between 
what has happened historically that has accrued to the benefit of these companies? And what will happen going forward that will accrue to the benefit of these companies? Google has a great business. It has a wonderfully scalable business. On the other hand, what they have, at least today, is an advertising business. Google has been able to grow extraordinarily fast by taking share from every other kind of advertising that has happened. The underlying fundamental truth that advertising grows with GDP has not changed. And as their share of advertising gets bigger and bigger, their ability to outgrow gets compromised. They are not going to be able to outgrow forever unless they fundamentally change the way they make money. Google's just this nice, easy example. I don't actually think that Google is necessarily that mispriced today. But being able to pull apart the difference between this is what happened historically and I am going to extrapolate this into the indefinite future versus these are the conditions for the company that I can be confident are going to persist in the future. So today what we see, and it varies across markets, in the U.S., you have definitely paid up for growth. In much of the rest of the world, where there aren't that many Googles out there, what you have really paid up for is quality. And today, I think there's been this huge gap that has opened up. Again, in the U.S., the value spread is significantly wider than normal, and that probably means value deserves to win over the next five to 10 years. But if you look at Europe, if you look at Japan, if you look at the emerging worlds, the spreads are both wider and the underlying economic justification for them is a lot more tenuous. Maybe, despite what I said about Google, the limits to their growth are going to come in 2035, not 2020. But the limits to growth of some of the branded companies in Europe that are trading at a very big premium to the more apparently dopey cyclicals that's really hard to economically justify those gaps. To what extent, when you have this growth, and we think of the tech giants, or the, you think of Google and advertising and obviously Amazon and commerce, even if growth slows down, whether it's a few years out or 15 or 20 years out, you end up with highly concentrated industries. And certainly Jonathan Tepper's argument, we have that not just in the tech companies, but really across the board, some of it due to regulatory ease, some of it from natural monopolies. Even if the growth slows, do profit margins in those businesses inevitably settle out at a higher level than other companies just because of the concentration in the industry? Yeah, I'd say that's probably the most important question in trying to decide what the U.S. stock market is worth these days. There is no question the gap between the biggest companies and everybody else in their industries, the gap in profitability has widened very significantly. And that widening has been much more pronounced in the US than it has been elsewhere. And that's true, as you say, for the tech giants. It's true across other industries as well. And if you look at it, I'd say the most obvious thing is the US has been most accommodating of major economies to companies that want to aggressively expand. We did that because we had a very straightforward 
view of the dangers of concentration and monopoly power, kind of the underlying Bork doctrine that what matters is where this impacts consumer prices. I think, frankly, is some of the mergers that have been allowed to occur, you still scratch your head as to exactly how did we decide this was unlikely to impact consumer prices, but it's allowed more or less free reign in areas where the business does not directly charge consumers. I'd say the great uncertainty about what's going to happen in the next 20 years, on the academic side, we are increasingly seeing the evidence of what other harms there are to the economy from increased concentration and monopoly power beyond simply consumer prices. So I think antitrust is going to evolve, which will not be to the good for the big dominant companies. But one of the things I think we got wrong in our forecasts was we said implicitly that that unwinding is going to occur in the same kind of time frame as cyclical fluctuations in earnings. And it's not a cyclical thing. It's a secular thing. And one of the things that's important to remember about secular trends is just because something is secular doesn't mean it continues forever and doesn't even mean that it's not going to reverse. It's just not going to be driven by the business cycle. My guess is this is a secular trend that is going to reverse. It is going to reverse as policy reverses. That is going to be a slow and unsteady process because even if you did get an administration that decided to be pretty proactive on this, a lot of this stuff winds up in the courts, and the courts are pretty conservative. I don't mean that politically, although maybe there's some of that creeping in now too, but a lot of things are driven by precedent. And unless you are explicitly changing the law, evolving that precedent is slow. So I think it has been a wonderful time to be a big dominant company in the U.S. I think it will continue to be a wonderful time to be a big dominant company for some period in the future. My guess is the next 20 years are not going to be as kind to these companies as the last 20 years have been. But over the course of 20 years, you can make a lot of money. <laughs> Another challenge to value has been the significant shift in the economy towards technology and the disruption of technology across industries. How do you think about integrating the economics of that into any modeling of what would constitute a good value stock or portfolio? There's two pieces of that. There is one is how does that shift impact the economic reality of companies that is not reflected in the standard accounting data? And a number of people have written about that, but we have done a lot of work to try to incorporate as much of that intellectual property and tangible assets into value measures as we can. So there's that aspect of it where it hasn't fundamentally changed anything except it's fundamentally changed what you are trying to measure. And so you better change your measurements. The other piece, which is, I think, more difficult in principle for certainly a quantitative process is 
insofar as the world has changed in a way that means returns to scale are more important. Figuring out which companies are going to accrue the benefits of scale and which are not is hard. And it's not just hard for quantitative investors. I think one of the things we have seen in the in some of the trials of what's gone on with the Vision Fund is this basic idea that, well, we can determine who is going to be the winner here by throwing a ton of money at one of the competitors and assuming that that means they will conquer everybody else. And it turns out that the reasons why you will scale do not simply come down to money. And if you were the guy with more money, you will win. So it's not that this makes it easy to do investing of one kind and not another. But in principle, if there was one thing I could know about the future of the world that would help me from an investing standpoint is which are the industries where the returns to scale and the ability to scale are going to be profound, and which are the industries where it won't. And the other key variable that people think about now is this low-rate environment, perhaps for a long time. How does that factor into thinking about modeling and value? That's another area I think of a lot of interest and debate within my firm, as well as, of course, across the industry. When you lower the risk-free rate, in principle, that should impact every investment, not just risk-free investments, because if you are taking risk, the reason why equities have an equity risk premium is because they are riskier. The size of that equity risk premium should not, in principle, go up just because the risk-free rate went down. And so the required return to equity should be lower if interest rates are permanently lower. Now, a couple of the key questions are, how can you tell what is permanent versus temporary? And that is hard. And the other is, I think when it comes within equities, how do we determine how sensitive both the overall equity market should be to this and how sensitive different kinds of stocks should have their prices to this. Because in one sense, to take the fixed income analogy, this all comes down to duration. If interest rates fall and you own cash, well, you get no capital gain because you have no duration and therefore there's no change to your price. If you own the 30-year bond, you have a lot of duration and you have a nice capital gain. Equities are, in principle, an exceptionally long duration asset. Relative to bonds, they are both a perpetuity, so there is no maturity date, and that makes them long duration but also they're even longer duration than a perpetual bond because their cash flows grow over time. And therefore, cash flows you're going to be getting in 20, 30, 50 years have some material present value. You could come to the conclusion that the stocks that are most benefited by this reduction in interest rates are growth stocks because growth stocks seem to be higher duration stocks by virtue of the fact that more of your cash flow comes from the distant future. The tricky part of that is there's an underlying assumption there that's really difficult to test, which is what happens to the numerator of my fraction here as I am changing the denominator. 
So the underlying risk-free rate impacts the denominator of my discounted cash flow model. And if you assume it has no impact on the numerator, it has no impact on my future dividends and future cash flows, then what you want is somebody who's not going to be paying any dividends for 10 years at the very least. But how do you tell the difference if the discount rate falls by 50 basis points between saying, well, for Amazon, this is wonderful because I thought they had an ROIC of 15%. I still think that. And the discount rate has fallen by 50 basis points. And man, that's great because all of their earnings come from the distant future. How do you compare that to the discount rate just fell by 50 basis points? And that is driven by an underlying change in the dynamism of the economy such that I think that that 15% ROIC I used to believe for Amazon is now 14.5%. Now, 14.5% is still a great ROIC, but if their ROIC has in fact dropped by that 50 basis points, they're no longer a long-duration asset, at least with regard to this change. And I don't know how do you tell the difference between Amazon having a 15% ROIC and a 14.5% ROIC. So I think there is this tendency to assume this is disproportionately good for the growth guys. It is possible that it is, but it's also possible that it isn't. The most striking thing economically that has been associated with the period of these surprisingly low interest rates relative to expectations has been the surprisingly poor productivity growth of the U.S. economy, in some ways inexplicably poor. Productivity growth has been lousy. It was lousy last year. It's been lousy the last five years. It's been lousy the last 10 years. And some people said, well, of course that was going to happen because we're a service-based economy. And services... It's hard to have productivity growth. And even if it was possible to have productivity growth, how do you even measure it? We know it's probably not possible to have productivity growth in giving haircuts. Maybe there's productivity growth in financial services, but we don't actually know how to measure the output. We don't know how to measure the inputs. Maybe there's been wonderful productivity growth and we just haven't measured it. And the problem economists have said, and they're continuing to say, is, well, manufacturing is less than 20% of the economy. So even though that's where the productivity growth is going to be, it won't matter as much as it used to. I assumed that that was what was going on until I looked at the data. But if you look at the data, I believe it to be the case that since 2011, productivity growth in the U.S. in manufacturing has been worse than the productivity growth across the entire economy every year. And that's something we should be able to measure, right? You can measure the number of widgets that were produced. You can measure the number of people who are working in the factory. So I don't think we have the data wrong, but there's something really deeply mysterious about that productivity growth has been net negative. We are less productive making stuff than we were in 2011. And that shouldn't happen, right? At the very least, you should be able to maintain your productivity growth by keeping your factory exactly the same. We have underperformed that. I don't understand how. I don't understand why. And of course, how and why are the questions that I most love. But 
it does, I think, call into question some of the assumptions we have a tendency to make about what future returns on capital are going to be. So we have a bunch of head scratchers. There's certainly this question of productivity, this question of the impact of concentration and technology. And at the same time, almost more than any time in your tenure at GMO, notwithstanding the late 90s, you've effectively been pounding the table on what you see as a very attractive value. What is that case for value today? The simplest case for value is that these value companies have a certain amount of undergrowth relative to the market, and they are trading at a bigger discount than you need to to pay for that undergrowth. Price matters, as I learned from Robert Schiller, price matters with everything. To make it slightly oversimplified, value stocks trade at a discount by definition. Historically, they traded at a 25% discount and they undergrew by 3% a year. And it turns out that a 25% discount and 3% a year on undergrowth allows you to outperform by a point a year. In the more recent period where value has really underperformed, the interesting thing is that undergrowth has been almost exactly the same as history. So even though we have Google, even though we have Amazon, the fundamental undergrowth of value companies hasn't been worse than normal. There have been a couple of other things under the surface that have mattered. One of them, crucially for the U.S., has been the fact that the dividend income you have gotten from being value has been lower than normal. And that's simply because the U.S. has traded at much lower dividend yields. So the cheaper companies, you just get a smaller increment of additional dividends. There have been a couple of other things going on under the surface. But the key reason why value was doomed to fail in 2007 was not because Amazon was destined to conquer the world. It was that instead of trading at a 25% discount, value was trading at a 17% discount. And they didn't deserve to win. They deserved to lose from that level. So the fundamental performance of value hasn't been that different. The problem is we started off at basically the most expensive time in history for value relative to the market. And today, we're really cheap again. And what does that discount today? It varies by market, but if it was normally 25, maybe today it is 35 or 37. It is much wider than normal. I think there's a lot of tendency to focus on this in the U.S. Well, one, we're in the U.S., and so we tend to be a little bit parochial in our outlook. The value spreads are probably wider outside of the U.S. than they are in the U.S. And there's a couple of things that are particularly cool about that opportunity. One is outside of the U.S., we haven't seen this profound underlying fundamental benefit of being a giant dominant company in quite the same way. So there seems to be less of the air sucked out of the industry by the biggest two or three players. So fundamentally, we're a little bit less worried there. The other thing that's actually a key difference is since the absolute valuations tend to be lower outside of the U.S., the income benefit of being value is bigger. The emerging portfolio that we're running in kind of our multi-asset portfolios, as of the end of the year, was trading at 
nine times earnings with a dividend yield of five. And the really cool thing about a portfolio trading at nine times earnings with a dividend yield of five is you don't need good things to happen to get a good return out of that. You just need catastrophically bad things to fail to happen. Now, that is not a guarantee that catastrophically bad things won't happen, but it does put the odds in your favor. If you are buying a portfolio that is trading at 27 times earnings with a dividend yield of one, you need good things to happen. Maybe they will, but I am really excited about the companies we own outside of the U.S. because they're cheap, they're decently profitable, they're not very levered, and all I need to get a good return is for the world not to end. Even though you mentioned that a lot of the fundamental portfolios are tilted towards growth, we also hear a lot about the impact of large pools of quantitative investing. Why do you think it's the case that more of that quantitative money hasn't sort of normalized these value spreads? One of the things about quants is they tend to naturally gravitate to whatever has worked. If you are a quant, your favorite tool is the back test. And it has now been 12 years that value has underperformed. You are much less likely to come up with a quantitative stock selection technique that is predominantly value because if you look back, you say, oh, well, this hasn't worked. And so I think whereas a lot of them had very value-biased portfolios in 2005 and 2007, they don't. Now, there's also the underlying reality that some of the quantitative managers, ourselves included, do have a value bias. The ones that do have a value bias have not had great trailing <laughs> one, three, and five-year performance, and therefore the flows haven't been going there. So you have a tendency for the quants to gravitate away from value. You have a tendency for the money to be gravitating away from value. And that combination means the quantitative investors that have been gathering the money aren't value. Is there a point in time where you'll think, you said 12 years of underperformance of value, do you get to a point in time where you kind of scratch your head and say, you know what? Maybe the fundamental drivers of businesses have changed into these two groups of companies. And whatever the discount, 25% discount value spread was, actually wasn't wide enough for this new economic reality. Certainly, the thing we have been focusing on the last couple of years is trying to understand the underlying fundamentals about why value underperformed. And I think, you know, one of the assumptions I had going in was, well, of course it was the case that their undergrowth was worse than normal. Turns out it wasn't. Now, some of the things that hadn't really occurred to me as potential drivers of this have been at least implicated to it. So one of the benefits of being value is you have benefited by more than average from takeover activity, right? M&A activity does not add anything to the whole. It would be weird if it did. But if you can systematically manage to be the target rather than the acquirer, that's a good thing. It's always been a nice benefit to being small, 
because small companies get taken over by big companies and the reverse does not generally happen. And it was always a disproportionate benefit for value. Value companies get taken over by more often. The last 12 years, there's been this interesting difference. It looks as if more growth companies have been taken over than there used to have been. There is a difference between a world in which you think you will be a disproportionate beneficiary of this to actually it doesn't matter. And okay, maybe this was 30 basis points, 40 basis points a year in favor of value, and it disappeared. But that does, in principle, change the fair value discount you need to trade at to have future performance similar to historic performance for value. But one of the difficult questions with something like that is, do we expect this going forward? Given how low rates have been, and indeed how tight credit spreads have been, private equity firms have had an enhanced ability to buy growth companies and take them private. We've also had a world where, frankly, the big dominant companies have bought a lot of companies. And most of the companies they bought were growth companies. Maybe in the future, they're not going to be allowed to buy other companies in the same way. And if we ever got a change in either credit spreads or the overall level of interest rates, maybe the private equity firms will have to, again, disproportionately buy cheap companies again. So we can answer the question, why did value do less well? And a small but not insignificant piece seems to have been around takeovers. That does not necessarily tell us, will that persist into the future or not? And there, you've got to make a fundamental call. Ben, I know you've had lots of different clients, lots of different types of institutional clients, and have served on some investment committees. I want to turn a little bit to the lessons that you've seen and learned from, let's just call them mistakes, that you systematically see some of your clients or other allocators make. Well, I'm going to sound like a broken record. I think a surprising number of them come down to not asking the question of why and how, or allowing themselves to believe maybe naive narratives about the answers. So I think, as I have seen extraordinary investors over the years, some of their key characteristics are they do a ton of work. They do not just follow their gut and say, oh, well, I met this guy. He seemed really smart. I'm going to back him. But they do a ton of work on analyzing their managers, analyzing the kinds of things they're going to do. And they ask difficult questions about why do I think this person is going to be an extraordinary investor? Why do I think this activity is something that I'm going to get paid for? And I think at the end of the day, there is no substitute for doing the work and asking the hard questions. I'd say a lot of the mistakes that we see investors make is simply following past returns 
and not asking the question, well, where did those returns come from? How sustainable are those returns? Or why is this an activity that really deserves to give me a fundamental premium? And under what circumstances should I call into question whether that's going to be true going forward? I would say my most frustrating term that I see every time I speak to an investment committee, and most of the time when I serve on an investment committee, is this idea of an illiquidity premium. People are investing in illiquids, and they make this underlying assumption, I am giving up liquidity, and therefore I am getting paid for it. And the reality is there are circumstances in which you can see that you are getting paid for giving up liquidity right, in the fixed income markets. And my favorite example of this is in the emerging sovereign debt world where our team has been operating for 26 years. And you can have two different bonds that are both full faith and credit of Brazil for whatever that's worth, right? Maybe you think that that's a wonderful thing. Maybe you think that that's a horrible thing. But where the basic difference is one of these is a very liquid bond and one of them has much wider spreads and, and a much less deep market. And you're getting paid 250 basis points more for owning the less liquid bond. Okay, that is an illiquidity premium. I know lots of investors who are saying we are putting money into LBOs because there is an illiquidity premium there. And I try to ask them, and it's not that I am successful in convincing anyone of this, but okay, we have an LBO. You are taking a company that was public. You are taking them private. You are going to take them public again. So fine, in the interim, it is illiquid. But where does that illiquidity premium come from? It was a liquid asset. It will be a liquid asset. How can you possibly be getting paid in illiquidity premium for a fundamental asset that will be liquid before you get it and will be liquid afterwards? Now, if what you are saying is by giving up that liquidity, I am getting something else, my private equity manager is awesome at improving the underlying operational efficiency of the company. And you can only do that if you own the whole thing. So the liquidity is there in service of improving the operations or I really want this company to lever themselves up. And the only way I can really force them to do that is if I own the whole company. Okay, fine. So you are extracting money from the creditors. And the only way you can do that is by taking it a liquid. But this assumption that you get paid an illiquidity premium for anything that happens to be illiquid is, I think, dangerous. I think it is going to cause you not to be focused on the question of, all right, if I think this is about operational excellence, why do I think that this company has unique operational excellence? Why do I think as the world has changed and we have all learned from what these private equity firms have done that they have a sustainable advantage there? It's not that there aren't private equity firms that can answer those questions well. But if you don't ask those questions, you're not going to know which ones. And you're probably just going to wind up paying high fees to managers, some of whom do not have the characteristics that would be required to add the value you are assuming you're going to get.
I want to turn to some closing questions, but before we do that, I want to ask you a question that I imagine you get a lot, which is if you had a nice-sized pool of capital, it could be for an institution, endowment, foundation, pension fund, it doesn't matter, and asset prices are where they are today, maybe there's a liquidity premium, maybe there isn't, how would you think about it and what would you do? So I think the first question you need to answer to be able to answer that is be serious about what do you think you're really good at? If I am sitting down across from you, Ted, and you can say, you know what? I've got a lot of experience. I think I am really good at finding extraordinary managers. Then the answer is, how do I structure my portfolio so that I'm going to get the maximum benefit of finding those extraordinary managers? And the interquartile range of returns is wider in most of the illiquids than it is in liquids. So maybe you, Ted, should have a lot of money in illiquids. And then the question is, how much can I afford to have in illiquids? And let's be serious about it. You do not want to find yourself in the situation that some institutions did in 2008, where they thought it was fine to be 75% illiquid assets, and it turned out it wasn't. So once you've decided what you think you're really good at, the second thing is be serious about what risks you can afford to take and what risks you can't, and make sure you are not running a portfolio that is taking risks you can't afford to take. Otherwise, there's a lot of differences. People assume that every investor is kind of in the same boat, but the reality is the world for a foundation that is not going to have any future cash flows is different from one that is going to be having future cash flows. The world of, even if we stick with a foundation, a foundation that exists to try to cure cancer, and therefore the need is unaffected by the state of the economy, versus a foundation who is trying to feed the homeless, where actually the need gets a lot bigger when the economy goes down. Those two foundations should not be running the same portfolio because they can't bear the same risks. But it's not just about what, as an investor, can you put up with from a risk standpoint. It's also, what are you prepared to say about your beliefs? I was speaking at an endowment and foundation conference last month, and one of the obnoxious questions we ask the audience is, how many of you think you are better than average at finding active managers? The surprising thing was I think 18% of the audience said they did not think they were better than average. But, you know, if 80 plus percent think they're better than average, a lot of them are wrong. And they can do damage to their portfolio insofar as their beliefs and the reality are different. What are the other levers of answers to the question what do you think, Ben, you do well other than for allocators, other than, well, we think we're great at picking active managers? Well, I think one of the benefits you can have, I truly do believe this, is time horizon. A lot of things become more predictable over long time horizons. So if you really believe you can be a long-term investor, there are things you can do that you can't if you're not. The other reality is part of 
the game, again, this comes back to the illiquid side of things, is in a world where there is some significant persistence of excess returns by managers, having access to the best managers is a big deal. And if you do, that's cool. And that can be a benefit. If you don't, be realistic about what you're actually going to get. Well, Ben, since we sat down, which was only about three weeks ago, the world certainly changed a lot. And thanks for taking a few minutes just to love to hear your thoughts on what's evolved over these last couple of weeks. Yeah, it is amazing that we were there only three weeks ago. Now, we were bumping elbows instead of shaking hands, but still, it felt like a very different world back then. What we try to do when faced with an uncertain situation, and this is nothing if not an uncertain situation, is really get down to the basics of what it is that drives asset returns in the long term. So obviously, prices for every kind of risky asset have fallen very significantly in the past few weeks. And so on the face of it, everything looks more attractive. Now, everything only looks more attractive if the fair value hasn't changed that much. And so what we've been focusing on is the question of how do you try to understand the circumstances that change long-term fair value? And so we've really been focused on trying to answer those questions. For equities, it's not a very complicated couple of questions, albeit the answers are not necessarily trivial, even if the questions are straightforward. The two ways you can lose value in equities from a long-term perspective is if an event causes a long-term decrease in the return on capital, or if an event causes you as a shareholder to be significantly diluted. Now, bankruptcy is the obvious case of dilution. You came in owning the company, you come out owning nothing. That can be an issue if you own an individual stock. It's historically not been an issue if you owned a broadly diversified portfolio. So even the really bad events have been a question of how much dilution did you face? And historically, apart from events of, frankly, revolution and regime change, we haven't seen profoundly dilutive events. We've seen things where you got diluted a few percent, maybe as much as 5%. In the case of financials, it can be a little bit more. But as we look around and think about what the world will look like in five years, it's hard for us to see why there should be a sea change in the return on capital. And the dilution from this event. Well, there's more uncertainty there because if it was the case that governments did not step in to support the economy, it would be disastrous. Economies are not meant to come to a sudden stop, and every dollar of activity that is not going on is also a dollar of income that is not going in. So we are operating under the assumption that governments will do the necessary things to stop this from being an unimaginable disaster. And then we come to the conclusion that for the most part, this shouldn't change the fair value of equities by a lot. That does not 
in any way discount the potential of markets to completely crater as kind of the human and emotional aspects of this really come to the fore. And what we have seen in past crises of various kinds is people's emotional slash intellectual ability to think long-term really gets hit. And therefore, the problem with those acute events is not so much that stocks lose their value forever. It's that it's not clear what the catalyst will be to get people to be willing to take risk again. But for us as long-term investors, when we see an event like this, we feel it is our responsibility to be buying risky assets. This is why risky assets give a risk premium. Risky assets do really badly in really bad circumstances. And this is a really bad circumstance. So it's not a shock. It's not a surprise. It's part of the package. And what we see in these events and what we are seeing today, what we saw in the global financial crisis is the payment for taking risk just goes up. And if you're not prepared to take risk when the payment for taking risk has really gone up, you're not really an investor anymore, or, or at least you're not a long-term investor. So when you've taken out your calculator and started paying attention to what's happening with prices, have you seen anything meaningful as a differentiator of the value factor? In this part of the downturn, traditional value stocks have continued to underperform. And, and the group that has held up the best is high quality companies. And look, that makes perfect sense. You know, this is a disaster for lots of industries. It's not really a disaster for drug companies. It's not a disaster for internet service providers or the Googles of this world. So I'm not surprised that value to date has not done particularly well on the downside. One of the things we've looked at, and this kind of goes back to some of the work that Jeremy Grantham has done over the last 45 years, is in the first stage of bear markets, everything tends to go down the same. And if anything helps, it's quality. In the second phase, valuation tends to matter. That doesn't mean value stocks always outperform in the second phase. It is the stuff that has gotten really cheap starts to outperform. And then in the third phase, you can even start to see a change in sign where the really cheap stuff, even before the market has hit the bottom, can start to turn around. And so as this wears on, I think valuation is going to start to matter more and more. But I'd say the first headline is, everything that you can plausibly think of as a risk asset has just gotten a lot cheaper. You know, in the case of U.S. large caps, we still don't think they're at fair value yet, but they're a lot cheaper than they were a month and a half ago. In the case of emerging markets, which were close to fair value a month and a half ago, they're cheap. Non-U.S. equities are probably cheap. Value stocks where we were seeing a really historically interestingly widespread, that's just gotten wider. So from the standpoint of if you can hold your nose and not be staring at your portfolio on a daily basis, there's some great opportunities here. But it requires some bravery in a way that it didn't feel like it did in early January. 
Are there any other risks that you think are important if you're able to get past the behavioral challenges in a time like this? The markets and economies holding together today does depend on government action in a way that is almost unique. Government stepping in really helped the financial crisis not turn into a depression. But what we have seen is normal depressions end themselves, even without that much help. I mean, there's the human toll is can be horrific, but they do end. This kind of sudden stop in the economy is really outside the realm of historic comparison. Frankly, governments are the only entities that have the capacity to do what needs to get done. So we are reliant on the government to do the right thing, which is always a little bit scary. The good news is the right thing isn't necessarily super complicated. It just requires people to say whatever my normal beliefs are about the role of government, it's got to be different right now. All right. Well, I guess let's just hope for the best. And even though hope isn't a great strategy, it seems like the one we have right now. Yeah. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how this all plays out. Well, let's turn to a couple of closing questions. What's your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? I knew you were going to ask that, and I still don't have a great question. I, I was thinking about, well, what is it that I do the most outside of work and family? It turns out to be listening to audiobooks and podcasts. I could pretend that that is all about self-expansion. I'm not sure that that's true. I think a lot of it comes down to the fact that when I was a little kid, my dad would read to me before bed every night. And I couldn't fall asleep if he didn't. And it turns out once, particularly we have smartphones and the availability of audio books and podcasts are there, turns out I love being read to. I spent 30 years in a world where I couldn't be read to because that was not an available thing. And, and now I can be read to again. So I love consuming information that way. What's your biggest pet peeve? This is probably not going to put me in a particularly good light, but I hate it when people use words that they don't actually know the meaning of. I find it frustrating. And in, in, in the investment world, there are two purposes to communication. One of them is to actually communicate, to teach people stuff, to let them know how you think and maybe how you think they should think. The other piece is to show them how smart you are. And the thing I find endlessly frustrating is that people are trying to show how smart they are by misusing words. And so I know it's petty of me, but every time somebody is using the term fulsome when they actually mean plentiful or it's wrong. Whenever they use militate and they don't understand that that should be used in kind of a negative way, that it, you militate against something, it just bothers me because they are clearly using it to try to impress. And wouldn't it be better if they focused on trying to communicate? You know, I like to ask about your biggest investment pet peeve. And you know, we've talked about the, the lack of illiquidity premium at times or the assessment of illiquidity premium. Do you have another favorite investment pet peeve? Yeah, I think it's the fact that people don't ask why and they don't ask how. 
they say, well, you know, equities give a higher return than bonds. Okay, great. Why do they do that? If it's about a risk premium for depression risk, which I think it is, well, under what circumstances should you expect that that's going to go away? And if you actually think you live in a world that doesn't have depressions anymore, why do you think you're going to get paid an equity risk premium? And one of the things that investors tend to get wrong is their forward-looking return assumptions are driven hugely by backward-looking return analysis. And so, you know, you've got plenty of people who implicitly in their fixed income portfolios are saying, well, I think I'm going to get five. And I think I'm going to get five because that's what they've done over the last 25, 30 years. There is no way to get five out of a fixed income benchmark that is yielding 2.2. It just can't happen. It can happen over the course of a year. But over anything close to the something similar of duration to the securities you own, it's impossible. And it just comes from the sloppy thinking, not thinking, how were those returns generated? And why were those returns generated? And I think people would avoid so many of the mistakes they make as investors if they just stop and ask why and how. How do you and your team use social media in your analysis professionally? We don't have a systematic way of doing it. Certainly, various teams are mining it to try to get information that hasn't showed up in the hard data yet. But I don't think, at least as a firm, we have really figured out how can you use this to get at underlying economic truths. We live in this world, and and social media is partially to blame, where truth (laughs) has been somewhat devalued. But figuring out what is emblematic of kind of a profound change. And I think as investors, one of the most important things we need to do is be on the lookout for change. Social media is one of the places where you can theoretically see it. But I don't know how you mine it for those truths. What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you? As a kid, whenever I'd go to my parents and give them my report card or or show them something on a paper, one thing they tended to ask me was, well, how do you feel about it? And I think this is a world where there is an awful lot of focus on external validation, where the way you feel about yourself is driven by how you think other people feel about you. And I'd say maybe the most valuable thing my parents taught me was before you worry about what other people think about you, make sure you like what you are doing. You like who you are. Okay, all right. Last one. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in life? I'd say there's kind of two. One of them is... Life is too short to spend your time around people that you don't like. And the other is kind of comes back to the external validation versus internal. You are never as smart as you think you are when things are going well. 
and you are probably smarter than you think you are when things are going against you. Ben, thanks so much. Thanks, Ted. Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you found a nugget or two to take away and apply in your investing and your life. If you'd like what you heard, please tell a friend and maybe even write a review on iTunes. You'll help others discover the show, and I thank you for it. Have a good one, and see you next time. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. All opinions expressed by guests on the show are solely their own opinion and do not necessarily reflect those of their firm. Manager's appearance on the show does not constitute an endorsement or investment recommendation by TED or Capital Allocators.